it's amazing as you look throughout the history, especially in the scriptures in which you see where God has, has a mission in which he is seeking to set apart for himself a people. People who are unique, people who are distinct from the rest of the world. It is God's heart to set, a, set apart for himself people who do not follow after the gods of this world, to set apart for himself people who do not live the way the rest of the world works, people who do not seek after the things that are around them, but seek after him. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, the Lord says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, God's people are to be unique and distinct from the rest of the world. God made us to be different, to think differently, to live differently because our desires are different than the rest of the world around us. And the question I want us to answer this morning is this, how? How in the world do we as followers of Jesus live as exiles, as people who are not home yet? How do we represent Christ while living on this earth? Well, we see the answer in Titus chapter three. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter three. Uh, we're in a brief sermon series called Ambassadors in Exile, in which we are looking at what it means to represent Christ and to follow Christ in this hyper-politicized, uber-emotional election season. We need to be reminded of who we are in Christ and who we represent as followers of Christ. We saw last week in Daniel chapter 2, how God used a dream of a pagan king as the means through which to show his people that God is building a kingdom and he is going to use, raise up a stone that will destroy all the kingdoms of this earth. And that stone will one day turn into a mountain that will fill the earth. And we see that Jesus is the stone. The, what appeared as weak and as small has become the very means through which a new kingdom arises. And we are to be a people who give our lives to investing in this kingdom, giving our lives to advance a kingdom that indeed lasts forever. When you get to the book of Titus, you come across where Paul is writing to a man he has partnered with in ministry who is serving churches on the island of Crete. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul wrote to Titus to instruct him how to appoint pastors for churches, how to teach God's people to be wise and encourage them towards good works. Look with me in Titus chapter three, beginning with verse one. Paul says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, 
Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these sayings so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. The churches on the island of Crete, they needed godly leadership. They needed clear direction and biblical instruction. So we see here Paul laying out what it means to be countercultural, to be a people who are unique and distinct from the rest of the world. And so I want us to do this morning is I want us together to notice in the text how believers are to represent Christ in a land that is not our home. I want you to see first that we are to submit to governing authorities. Paul is instructing Titus to remind believers, verse 1, to submit to rulers and authorities, just as you and I, we have reminders on our phone. Maybe you have a reminder to help you remember to take your medicine, or just as we have to remind our children to brush their teeth. Here we see Paul telling Titus, remind God's people to submit to rulers and authorities. Now, we need reminding because we forget. We have spiritual amnesia. All of us are guilty of this. This is why throughout the Old Testament, we see where God tells us people, remember, remember, remember. Teach these things to my people over and over. One of the reasons your soul needs Sunday morning gatherings is because you forget and I forget. We need to be reminding one another weekly, regularly, as we gather around the word. We need the Lord to remind us of truths and promises that he has made. Well, here we see where Paul, Paul is reminding, telling Titus, remind God's people. Remind them of this is how we are to live. Now think about this. These first century believers did not have tax exemption when they gave to the local church. These believers, they didn't have the first amendment to give them the freedom of worship or of assembly. Many believers lived under governments that despised them because they kept saying that there is a king and there is a Lord that is greater than Caesar. And yet here they are being reminded, submit to the authorities above you. And here you and I sit And we are to be reminded once again to be submissive. Now that's a word that we as Americans don't like very much. Because when we were first established, we made sure that the British government understood that we don't submit to anybody. So when we are called to submit by scripture, it is something that is contrary to what we are used to as Americans, but it's also contrary to our nature as those who are sinful, those who are fallen. We don't want to submit to anybody. We might be telling us what to do. And yet to submit to a king or a Caesar or a government leader, though it feels repulsive, it's biblical. Because hear me, if you do not submit, you cannot be a believer. Kenneth, what are you talking about? You see, 
Being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ requires submission. You must first submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ before you can be a believer. You see, it's not where you say, I I believe in Jesus and I go live however I want to. To be a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean that you're the sun and he's a small planet revolving around you. That's not how it works. It's in fact the opposite. I mean, Jesus is the center. And when you give your life to Christ, he is one now is Lord over your life. You gladly submit to him and his leadership. And indeed he is the one who's in the center and you revolve your life around him. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, is that Jesus is Lord over every part of you. Your heart, your mind, your life. Jesus is Lord over your time, your wallet, everything you do. Jesus is Lord. You gladly submit to him. And now out of the overflow of your submission to Jesus, we then submit to those whom God has placed in authority over us. The word Paul uses for submission here, it's a military term. Just as a good soldier submits to his commanding officer, God commands believers to do the same for those who govern over us. We submit to them and look at verse one, we obey them. See, when the government commands people to do something, the response is submission and obedience. We follow the lead of those whom God has placed in authority above us. This is what God designed governments to do. They're they're designed as an institution to reward good behavior and oppose evil. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse one. He says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So as followers of Jesus, we are to be submissive and obedient to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. Simon Peter hit this in his first letter. In chapter two, verse 13, he says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Do you see that connection he made there? whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now remember who the emperor is who Peter and Paul are talking about in that moment. It's Nero. Nero was a lunatic. Nero, the emperor of Rome, would gather believers and snatch them from their worship gatherings, dip them in wax, and set them on fire as human candles for his garden parties. This is the same Caesar who set the city of Rome on fire and blamed believers, blamed Christians so that they would be persecuted. That is who Paul and Peter are saying we are to submit to. And so here these apostles are calling upon God's people in the first century to submit to these kinds of leaders. I think you and I can submit to the leaders in whom God has placed over us. So as we approach Tuesday and beyond and whatever the Lord has in store, regardless of who sits in the White House, we are called to submit and be obedient. And yet, yet it is important that believers are also called not to submit 
to governing authorities. When do we do that? It's when we are being called upon to do something that violates Scripture. You see, believers do not submit to earthly governments when we are commanded to disobey Scripture. And we see this all throughout the Bible. We see it in Exodus chapter one, when the, the, the Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to kill every Hebrew baby boy as soon as it's born. Well, they refused. They let the babies live. We see it in Daniel chapter three, where King Nebuchadnezzar commands everyone to bow down to the golden image. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused. We see it in Daniel chapter six, where they're commanding no one can pray to anyone but the king. Daniel refuses. He refuses to submit to governing authorities. We see it in Acts chapter four, when the Sanhedrin brings the disciples in and says, y'all need to stop preaching this Jesus. They refuse. In fact, in Acts chapter five, when they're being interrogated by the Sanhedrin a second time, Peter and John respond by saying, we must obey God rather than man. These are the moments in which we say no to submission to an earthly government, and it's when it violates scripture. And this has been the case all throughout church history. For 2,000 years, you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ who have paid the ultimate price by not submitting to earthly governments because they're being called upon to do something that violates Scripture. We see it in Polycarp. Justin Martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Huss, and thousands upon thousands of other believers who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. William Tyndale believed that the Bible should be available and translated into a language that the common people should be able to understand. When the Catholic bishop commanded, the, commanded him to stop translating the Bible into English, Tyndale said this, if God spares my life, in a few years, a plowboy shall know more of the scriptures than you do. He was a prophet because it came true. If you have an English Bible in your lap right now, it is due in part to the sacrifice of men and women like William Tyndale who would be strangled and set on fire and he would pay the ultimate price. You see, as followers of Jesus, we must be willing to submit to those whom God has placed in authority above us. And yet, there are times in which we do not submit. It's when we are being called upon to do something that violates scripture. Let us be a people who know the word of God and we know when we say no and when we say yes. We are to be a people who are able to read the times, circumstances, we take the word of God, allow it to be the filter through which we understand who we are, where we are located in history and how we relate to the government. So if there is a Caesar or a president or a Supreme Court that tells you to submit when it violates scripture, we are to say together, no. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. And while we do submit to governing authorities, we submit to Jesus first. Secondly, what I want you to see is that we represent Christ when we model godliness 
before a watching world. As we submit to and obey governing authorities, Paul instructs Titus to teach God's people to, to be, verse one, ready for every good work. Okay, we are to be ready and eager to serve others. Why? Because that's one of the reasons Jesus gave his life. Go backwards to chapter two, verse 14. We see Paul tell Titus that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. As believers who have believed upon the good works of Jesus for us in our salvation, banking our souls upon Christ, the good work of his life, the good work of his death, the good work of his resurrection, as we're banking our lives on his good works for our salvation, we are then compelled to go and live out good works for him. This is why we rejoice in Matthew 5, 16, when Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your father in heaven. You see, when people watch you serve selflessly as you go out of your way to meet the needs of those around you, as you cut the grass of the widow next door, as you use your own money to buy the groceries of the person who's struggling, as you change the oil for the single mom and the millions of other good works that we as believers do, when you do that, you are showing a watching world what the gospel looks like that we are a people who are unique from and distinct from the rest of the world. Our priorities are greater and we are eager for good works. And when you do good works, not only are you glorifying the Lord, you are also shutting the mouths of those who bring accusation against you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Simon Peter says, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what does this good work look like? Look at verse two. It looks like slandering no one, avoiding fights, always being kind, always gentle. To who? Verse two, all people. We do not mock, belittle, slander, make fun of political candidates. We don't create gifts or memes or put things on social media that are not true. Why? Because we are people of the truth. This is not to be who we are. We are a Titus chapter three, verse two kind of people. We are to be peacemakers. Let us be a people who are marked by Romans 12, 18. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with who? Everyone. Now, this does not mean that we don't disagree with one another. This does not mean that there are not issues that we need passionate, honest, humble, truth-filled debate. There are. 
We must wrestle through big problems and think through the best way to solve them. But never are we to slander, gossip, or belittle someone else. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are to be, verse 2, always showing gentleness to all people. We avoid fighting. We are to be kind. Why? Because God was gentle and kind towards you. When you and I were in sin, God in his kindness, verse 5, sent his son. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And though your sin and my sin is an affront to a holy and perfect God, the Lord was kind. He showed his kindness by giving his son who was treated the way that we should have been treated. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was gossiped about. He was slandered. He was executed. That was the treatment we deserved because of our sin. But Jesus stepped in and took it for us. He shows the kindness of God by stepping in our place and taking it on the cross for us. For it was on the cross as the Pharisees wagged their heads and talked their trash, as the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, as the thief on one side doubted him, Jesus still cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We see the gentleness and the kindness of God in Jesus. And when we see how God has been kind and gentle towards you, it compels us to be kind and gentle towards one another. And this is how we are going to be different in our culture. As everyone has their social media on caps lock, screaming at one another. May it not be so among you. We are a people who are unique and distinct from the rest of the world. Our blood pressure does not rise and fall based upon polls or who is in the White House because we have a king who is seated in heaven and he's doing just fine. Our hope is in this ruling and reigning king who is soon returning and will one day crush every earthly kingdom that competes with his. So as followers of Jesus, as we pick up our cross and as we follow him, we walk as he walked. We talk as he talked. We must never be crude, vulgar, arrogant, or self-promoting in our speech. So here's your challenge. Some of you are about to throw something at me. This week's challenge, audit your social media posts and text message threads. Go back, examine, comb through what have you said publicly that you should not have said? What have you sent that you should not have sent? Let us make sure that when we post, text, speak, Whatever it is, it's true. It's humble. It's Jesus honoring. It's honoring to the person whom we disagree with. Why? Because we used to disagree with Jesus. And he was kind 
and he was gentle towards us. See, we are Christ's, and we are ambassadors for Christ. If we get caught up in politics, you're going to begin to view those who vote differently than you as enemies rather than the mission field. Please don't miss that. Those who vote differently than you are not the enemy. They're the mission field through whom, for whom Christ died. He gave his life for all. So let us be a people who remember that we only have one enemy, and it's not those who vote differently than us. Our enemy is Satan. He is the one whom we are waging war against. We are looking unto Jesus and trusting in his victory, and we continue to march forward, and we are to be a people who fix our eyes on Jesus, who do battle against the kingdom of darkness by praying, getting on our knees, crying out to Jesus, opening up our Bibles. Keep your Bible open. Stay there. Get in the word. You need it. Not because I said so. It's because God said so. You need the word of God, especially in COVID days, especially in politically tumultuous days, especially when we don't know what the future holds, which by the way, God is reminding us we really didn't in the first place. He's humbling us, isn't he? What a gift. I find myself griping way too much. What a gift that God right now, he is sifting the church. Who's gonna remain faithful? Who's going to stick with King Jesus? Who's going to keep following him even when it's not convenient? This is what it looks like to be unique, distinct from the rest of the world. Thirdly, we are to remember, oh, this is such good news. You are not who you used to be. (laughs) Paul reminds Titus, You're not who you used to be. Verse three, for we too were once, I love the past tense, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. This is is who we used to be before we knew Jesus. This is what we were like. And so before we mock or slander someone who does not know Jesus, let us remember that we used to be just like them. And we are not to be a people who get angry with lost people because they're lost. They don't know Jesus yet. I said and did some foolish, stupid things before I knew Jesus. Because I didn't know Jesus. And right now, we look around our our world and our culture. There's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. And so let us be gracious and patient and let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds. We see here, Paul lays out that the gospel declares that in Jesus, you are not who you used to be. Though sin and selfishness and pride and foolish behavior marked you before, the good news of Jesus is that he declares that you're no longer defined by those things anymore. Last week, I had lunch with a man who was a compulsive gambler. He gambled so much that he lost everything. He was receiving text messages from the bookies 
pay up or else. Well, something crazy happened. His wife got saved. She gave her life to Jesus. And he saw that she was so transformed by the gospel, he knew, oh my goodness, what is happening? Three months after she gave her life to Christ, he had one last gamble and he lost everything. Broken by his sin, he went into his closet, got on his knees and cried out for Jesus to save him. God transformed his heart and life. He paid back all of his debts. And then God did what God does. He called him into the ministry. He went into Bible college. He then took a struggling, dying church outside of Athens, Alabama, running about 30. And today they're running more than 1,600. Only Jesus can do that. And that's the power of the gospel. You're not who you used to be. Remember, you are new in Christ, which leads us to number four. Celebrate the gospel's power to change us. The gospel is what changes everything about you. Well, Kenneth, what is the gospel? Look at verse four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, the kindness of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has, verse four, shown his love for mankind. God loves the world. God loves sinners. And he loves to display his grace and his love through the work of his son. What did God do? Verse five, he saved us. He rescued us. You and I were dangling over the pit of hell by a thread and in comes Jesus who snatches us up, who rescues us from our sin, from death itself. Jesus is our rescuer. How did it happen? Because of what we did? No, verse five, not by righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. You see, your good works do not save you. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says, before a holy and perfect God. Our righteousness cannot bring us back to perfection. So we need someone else who is perfect for us. We need someone who can live a life that we couldn't live. We need someone who will die the death that we deserve. We need someone who has the power to defeat sin, death, hell, and even the grave Enter Jesus Christ. The mercy of God, where God sends his son, gives his life, defeats death, and he is the one you run to for salvation. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God is the one who will save you. You just come before him, admit who you are outside of Christ. I am a sinner. I am headed for hell. I need rescue. Jesus, I need you and he will save you. 
He is a mighty, powerful Savior who will rescue anybody who calls out to him in faith. Believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus and he will receive you. What we see here is that though our sins are many, we deserve punishment, but God shows mercy. He shows mercy. He says, instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm gonna put it upon my son. So now you're not gonna get what you deserve. Oh, that's the mercy. Not getting what you deserve. And how does this happen? He tells us, verse five, it's by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when you hear the gospel, when someone tells you about who Jesus is and what he has done, the Holy Spirit then takes their words and he makes them make sense to your heart. And he is the one who regenerates you, verse five, and then he renews your heart. That word for regeneration, it means a transformation of the heart. It is a new birth that takes place. This is a John chapter three, verse three. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he told him, I truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But when you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes of your heart to understand the gospel and he changes your heart. He regenerates your heart. So that 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. For it's from the heart that we are regenerated that then leads to new life. That's what we see there with a renewal. God transforms your heart and he gives you a brand new life. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17, Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. God transforms you from the inside out. You don't gotta go clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he will clean you up. You believe the gospel, trust in him, and let him do the work that only he can do. And it's amazing how the spirit, verse six, he does all of it, even to the point where verse seven, you're justified by grace. You're made right with God. You have a perfect and permanent salvation in Jesus. And it's a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And now by his grace, verse seven, you are an heir. You're an heir. You have an inheritance. This is what God's done for you in Jesus. For Romans 8, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Indeed, we have an inheritance, 1 Peter 1, that does not fade, spoil, or perish. Boy, is this not good news, church family? This is how we're unique. This is how we're distinct from the rest of the world. We treasure something that's far greater than our hands can get or money can spend. We have something that's far more significant than this temporary world. We have a gospel that tells us that you're not who you used to be. You're a new creation in Christ. And now we celebrate this. And now as ambassadors for Christ, as those living in exile, the gospel transforms your identity from the things of this world to Christ. So now this is what we are to do. Impact point, we see it in verse eight. Devote yourself to good works for the gospel. 
You devote yourself to good works for the gospel. Look at verse eight. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. We are those who have been set apart for something bigger than ourselves. And so as those who've been transformed by the gospel, we, know go, we now go out and live out the good works of what Christ has done for us. This has always been God's plan from the very beginning to set apart for himself a people who are not like the rest of the nations, who are not like those who chase after other gods. Question, what other gods have you been chasing after? Maybe it's personal gain uh, in the workplace, financial improvement, trying to make money the most important thing, social status in the classroom, in the hallways, or even in the community. Maybe you've been pursuing after a political victory, seeing that is more precious to you than Jesus. May I say to you, that's not you anymore. You're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who defines you now. So you now align yourself with him and give your life towards good works for the sake of the gospel. Not good works to make your name great, but good works to make his name great. To point a watching world to see what Jesus is like. And as God's people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to him. Let us march forth in the confidence that whatever happens on Tuesday and beyond, our hope is anchored and he is seated on the throne. He is the one we are looking to. So come what may, our Savior, he has been crucified, risen, reigning, and he's returning. Let's trust in him.